If you have a Bible, uh, if you would open it to the book of Acts, chapter 22, we'll get going. I'm going to finish the chapter, get into chapter 23 a little bit today, and uh, see what the Lord has for us in it. So as we, as we begin, uh, just by way of recap, remember Paul has concluded his third missionary journey, uh, the Apostle Paul, and he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to get there in time for the Feast of Pentecost, and so... If you've been with us through our studies in Acts, uh, you've definitely come to understand that this is not a leisurely trip for the Apostle Paul. He was tremendously burdened for his countrymen, for the Jews. Uh, he had been for years. Uh, that His burden was that they would come to understand that Jesus was and is their promised Messiah, the one that they had looked for for so long. And now he has opportunity to speak to these people. So, uh, <clears throat> one of the things we looked at too is as Paul had traveled toward Jerusalem that people had been prophesying to him there's danger, chains and trouble <clears throat> await you you're going to be falling into the hands of the Gentiles uh, there were people that from out, outside people in, in churches along the way had been telling him this but also the witness he had from the Holy Spirit was the same so he wasn't surprised where now here he is in the city on the Temple Mount, and he is in no small amount of trouble. He's been put into chains by the Romans, and now he's in the hands of the Gentiles. That was the Roman troops uh, from the Fortress Antonia on the Temple Mount. So he's been there. Uh, He was nearly beaten to death by an angry mob, and the the soldiers had come down and rescued him from that. Uh, had to actually put him up on their shoulders as they're carrying him to the stairs of the fortress because the the crowd was just ripping at him. And and so now Paul stops at the stairs. I mean, he asked permission from the commander, a Roman tribune. That's a guy that's over a thousand troops. uh, And he would have been the commander of the the Roman forces in Jerusalem. He asked him permission to speak to the people. Uh, The same people that moments before were trying to kill him, that had beaten the daylights out of him. Because he loved them. He loved these people and he wanted so much for them to come to understand the love of God as it's expressed through Christ Jesus. So remember too, there would have been tens of thousands, perhaps a hundred thousand people on the Temple Mount this day because of the national feasts in Israel. And there, Paul, he gets onto the stairs of the fortress where he begins to, now he's been given permission by the commander and he holds up a hand and the crowd gets quiet a chain dangling off his hand, off of his arm, and he begins to address them. So rather than appeal to them in the same manner that he had historically, I mean, as we look through the book of Acts, uh, by going into the Hebrew scriptures, the what we call the Old Testament, for them it was the Bible, it was just that was the scriptures, he decided to go back in his own personal history, give them a testimony of where he had been in Judaism, where he had come to as a Jew, and then what God had done since. And so we looked at that last week. Uh, he, he told them of having been trained in Judaism at the feet of a man named Gamaliel, a, a rabbi's rabbi, a very famous, the most famous rabbi in the land in their day. Uh, and, and what he was telling them in this is that, look, I understand your mindset. I understand what's driving you. I understand the hatred that you have towards the way. I was you. We looked at that last week. He says, uh, I was you. I, I, I understand. I get it. 
And he's appealing to these people because he wants them to understand that there was something that took place in his life that drove him literally to his knees before God and transformed everything. He's getting to that as he goes along. Uh, he shared that, that he had vehemently stood against the, the church and persecuted Christians, persecuting them to death. He had them imprisoned. He destroyed their lives. He was what we would refer to as one mean dude. And, and it was because he just had this, this visceral hatred for people that were followers of this person named Jesus. Uh, he, he went on to, he shared that he, he'd received letters from the leaders, the Sanhedrin. We're going to look at them this morning again. Uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, to go up to Damascus and to, to take people that were involved in this movement, to take them, to arrest them, and to bring them back to Judaism for prosecution, or to Jerusalem for prosecution. He was tracking people down. He wasn't just passively against the church, church. He was actively against the church. And, and people knew it. Had a reputation. <laughs> so, it was there, though, on that road to Damascus. We, if you've been around much at all, you hear about somebody that had a Damascus road experience. Well, that means you had something that just shifted everything. And it was there on that road that an event had taken place which radically, permanently altered the course of his life. And I might add the, the lives of countless others down through the ages, people in this room included, as a result. It was a pivotal moment in God's economy. It was certainly a pivotal moment in Paul's life. So remember, he's talking to the crowd. And as they're listening intently, he shared of being blinded and knocked to the ground by a light, uh, which he described as being brighter than the sun. We looked at that last week. Uh, He went into detail, talked about the encounter that he had with Jesus there on that road where the Lord had shown him that he took the persecution of his people personally. And folks, we talked about that. He takes it personally. So stunning was this encounter. So convicting was the realization that he'd been working against God all along that Saul, Paul, that was Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. He surrendered his life to Jesus on the spot there on that road. So then he was instructed to go to continue to Damascus. We talked about just being faithful in the next step. That's what God calls us to. It's not well, I've got this action plan for 25 steps down the road. Yeah, we have, we have goals and dreams and aspirations and all that. But God was calling him saying, look, go to Damascus and then I'll begin to tell you what I've got in store for you. So he does. He heads off to Damascus. He's blind. He has to be led by the hand. Uh, and there he meets a, what the Bible describes as a devout man, a believer uh, in Jesus named Ananias. And there in Damascus, Ananias would... Uh, first tell Paul to receive his sight. We're told in another account, not here in, in Acts 22, that it, that scales, it was like scales fell from his eyes as he regained his sight. So uh, then Ananias, speaking by the authority of the Holy Spirit, revealed to Paul what God's call upon his life would be, that he would be called as an apostle. That means a direct representative, all right? The, the apostles were trained by Jesus himself, and Paul would be uh, as an apostle of Christ, and he would be now commissioned to go and to speak in on Christ's behalf to the people. So after that, he was baptized by Ananias, and eventually he returned to Jerusalem. Now, 
we're told that as he was praying in the temple that he was in a trance one day and he saw Jesus telling him to get out of Jerusalem, that his life was in danger. And he originally, Paul originally argued with the Lord about that. He's like, well, wait a minute, you know, me of anybody, I understand the customs. I know the Jewish mindset. I know their temperament. I know their sensitivities. I know their biases, Lord. Paraphrasing, but that's really what he's saying here. And it, I, I'm your guy. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you need to leave. It's time to get out of Jerusalem. And we looked at how arguing with God is always, and I underscore always, a losing battle in our lives. So uh, in the meantime, he was forced to leave Jerusalem because he had angered a group of Hellenistic Jews, uh, Jews that were steeped in Greek culture, uh, and they were now plotting to kill him. So when word came to the brethren, they said, come on, Paul, let's get out of here. They hauled him down to Caesarea on the coast there. Uh, and from there, he went back to his hometown of Tarsus, where he would later, uh, Barnabas would come from the church in Antioch in Syria and meet up with him and they would begin their journey. So, but he, he wraps up uh, as he's addressing the crowd on the Temple Mount uh, by telling them that Jesus appealed to him once more and said, you need to leave the city. In verse 21, last week, he, we, we close with, he says, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. That was all it took. I mean, they were finishless at the word, the, 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 just dropping the name Gentiles. The crowd was done and they went into a furious, furious state. So backing up for just a minute, though, I, I want to bring something to your attention. You may have noticed that the title of this morning's message is Detained. Uh, I trust there's a slide back there. <laughs> These guys are good. Now, I want to tell you why I selected that uh, as the title for this morning's message. From the moment that the commander came out onto the Temple Mount and the Jews were beating Paul likely to death had he not intervened, the commander ordered Paul to be put into two chains. He said, take two chains and chain the guy. Detain him. So from that point forward, with exception to a somewhat brief period between Paul's first and second imprisonments in Rome, we don't know how long that was, probably not a long time, Paul would never be a free man again. He had been free up until he went into the temple with those men. Remember, he was going to fulfill the vow with the four other guys that they were trying to appease the Jews. From that moment... His life would not be his own. And we know that his life in a spiritual sense was not his own from the time he was on the Damascus Road. But now, physically, he would be taken and he would be detained in one fashion or another, sometimes cruel imprisonment. I've been to the, <laughs> I've been to the Mamertine prison in Rome, and it is not a fun place where they, where they held Paul in his second imprisonment until he was executed, had his head lopped off on the steps of the forum. I went from the Mamertine prison walked over to the steps of the forum short walk and was just kind of reliving all of this from the book of Acts and in my head. It was a very profound moment for me, uh, realizing that this man went through no small amount of trouble. When, when the Holy Spirit said, there's trouble ahead, oh, let me tell you, there was trouble ahead. So uh, the interesting, interesting thing about that, as far as his detention, he would no longer be able to visit the churches that he had planted the people that he had nurtured along the way. And so therefore, Paul would have to resort to writing letters. That's how he ministered from that point forward. It was the only option available to him when you're chained to a Roman guard. You don't have a lot of things that you can do. Understand this, those letters would be preserved. 
those letters clearly by the will of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would become part of the treasured uh, Holy Scriptures that we study today. Uh, I think it's absolutely remarkable how God allows this man to go through such hardship. And if you read in the New Testament, Paul never refers to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He understood that God's will for his life was not always going to be pleasant. He always referred to himself as a prisoner of Christ. Uh, important distinction to make. He understood. He understood that, that it's not feel-good Christianity that's going to count at the end of the day. It might get hard. And folks, I'm telling you, sometimes it's hard. And yet we've got to be in a place where we begin now to trust that God has this, that he understands that we go through some really screwy circumstances sometimes. And yet at the end of the day, as I avail myself to, to the Lord and I say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand. I just know it hurts to trust and to understand that he has my life in his hand. Great example from the Apostle Paul here. So we left off in verse 22 last week, and that's where we're going to launch from this morning. It says, and they listened to him and tell this word, that's when he said Gentiles, that (laughs) Jesus told me I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not worthy. He's not fit to live. And then as they cried out, tore off their clothes, threw dust in the air. So Luke tells us the crowd on the Temple Mount, uh, they listened to Paul up until the statement about being sent to the Gentiles, and their fury just erupted again. So understand, too, the attitude of the average Jew towards Gentiles, that they were good for nothing. Uh, they thought they lived like animals. They called them dogs. And Really, one of the popular sayings among them is that they were fit only for the fires of hell. They did not like anybody that was not a Jew. They were very exclusive in their thinking. And that's why they were so upset. They were incensed that God would now save the Gentiles. Are you serious? Yeah, he was serious. So they call for his death. They're saying that a person like Paul, that now he's a sympathizer with those low-life Gentiles, that he shouldn't be allowed to live. Now, something else about this too, in, in verse uh, 23, it says that they tore off their clothes. Now, I don't get the wrong idea here. It doesn't mean that there's a bunch of naked people running around at the Temple Mount. What it, the Greek word for clothes is, is better translated cloaks or garments, all right? Uh, they shouted, they shook their clothes and their outer tunics threw dust in the air. This is a sign from the Jews. That was how they handled These kind of things, that was their symbol and what they did when they absolutely were throwing off everything that Paul had had to say. They were saying, we do not approve. They completely rejected him, completely rejected all that he had to say. So just, and I always look at companion passages too. In Acts chapter 18, we see a picture of Paul. Remember, he was in Corinth. And the Jews had stood against him there. They lined up, actually blocked him from going in. And it says that he shook the dust off of his cloak. He said, I'm done with you guys from now on. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he did. So uh, just a little background on that. The other thing too about this is these Jews are on the Temple Mount and they are so incensed with what Paul has said. Uh, I, I got to thinking about this. I thought, man, it's a good thing they're on the Temple Mount because there's no rocks there. Because if there were rocks there, you can be assured they would have used them. That's what Jews did. They threw rocks. 
And whether it was, and it was illegal to do that. Stoning had become illegal. When Stephen was stoned, it was against the law, but it was permitted anyway. Verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, so that's into the fortress Antonia, and said that he should be examined under scourging. <laughs> that's a great interpretation there of something that sounds like a lot of fun, huh? And so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So, When the commander saw the Jews in their frenzy, he must have concluded that Paul was guilty of some serious crime. Remember, Paul addressed the Jews in Hebrew, Aramaic, this is the language of the day, same thing. He addressed it, the the commander had no idea what was being said. Uh, And so what he orders is for Paul to be scourged. Now, we're going to talk about that a bit, uh, because... What the Romans did when they wanted to extract a confession from someone, they took and they scourged someone because it was a horrible, horrible form of torture. Uh, we saw, now, I want you to understand, this is different than being flogged with a whip or being beaten with rods like they did Paul and Silas in Philippi. Remember we saw the lictors and the fascia? That's where we get the word fascist. Uh, the, 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 there was a, a bundle of rods that they would beat them in with. They'd beat Paul and Silas with those, threw them into jail. Scourging was far worse. I mean, it was horrible, uh, much more severe than the Jews or the Romans forms of torture. Now, I've got a slide here. The Roman scourge, also called the flagrum or a flagellum, was a short whip made with three or more leather straps connected to a handle. Now, these leather, leather straps were knotted with metal, sometimes sharp bones, such as a knuckle bone of a sheep, uh, and the flagrum would sometimes have a hook at the end. And I, I had never seen this before, but I looked it up, and there I found several sources that, that talked about this, that it, it had a terrifying nickname, the scorpion, uh, because you think about like a scorpion's tail. Now, scourging would quickly tear someone's flesh open. It would leave skin hanging uh, like ribbons, sometimes even down to their internal organs. If you were going to be scourged, that was no small thing. So according to Jewish law, you couldn't be somebody any more than 40 times. (laughs) So the Jews stopped at 39 because they didn't want to miscount and sin, (laughs) which I think is just, that's just so Jewish. Anyway, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, from the Jews, I received 40 stripes minus one, 39, five times. So anyway, the Romans, though, they didn't have any such law. There were no limits on what they did. Their punishment wasn't so much about the number of lashes as it was about beating a person until they were close to death and then backing off. Uh, Men were specifically trained in, they looked at it as an art to scourge uh, people that they had by design. It was intended to get someone to talk. And you can only imagine how effective that would have been. Terrible form of torture. Verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, I love this, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Hmm, please tell me. (laughs) Now... Preparation for scourging, would it would involve being bound with leather thongs tied to a post or between two posts. It was I see different depictions, I don't know. But the guy would be tied up, and then the, the men doing the scourging, one or two soldiers, one on each side, would proceed. Now, knowing the severity of what was coming, <laughs> I really am not sure why Paul wasn't telling everybody, 
Like, I'm a Roman. Uh, I'm a Roman. Uh, um, by the way, I'm a Roman. Hey, hello, I'm a Roman. You can't do that. You know, I, I, it doesn't say that. It just says that he goes to the centurion. He says, look, are you within the law to scourge a Roman? Not just a Roman, but somebody who is uncondemned. There's been no due process. He hadn't even been charged with anything. The, the commander didn't know what to charge him with. Uh, and so these guys, they're just doing their best to control the crowd to appease this angry mob. I mean, you got 100,000 angry Jews up on the Temple Mount. That's a thing. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how to navigate this. So it's obvious that Paul's asking a rhetorical question of the centurion. Uh, he's saying, look, what you have been doing since the moment you put me in change, by the way, this is what's implied. And what you're about to do is completely against the law. And he wanted them to know it. Roman citizens had rights that the Jews and that non-citizens didn't. Uh, You couldn't even tie up a Roman citizen before his guilt had been proven. It had to be proven. There was due process. They had that in their system as well as we do in ours. Doesn't always work. As a side note, (laughs) some people have pointed out, uh, Paul had been chained from the time the Roman soldiers came up, uh, came upon him when he was on the Temple Mount. Remember, they, that's the first thing that the commander did. Well, why didn't he say that he was a Roman citizen then? <laughs> Good question, Kledge asked. Paul had two choices. You know, he, think about it. He has this crowd that is literally wanting to tear him limb from limb. And so he's got, on one side, he's got angry mob intent on killing him. Or on the other side, Roman soldiers with chains intent on rescuing him from the angry mob. Which would you take? (laughs) Pretty obvious. He's, uh, hey, I'll take the chains. Thank you very much. And so he allows them to chain him at that point. Doesn't make a beef about it at all. Because he knows that that's the only way he's going to escape these people. So verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Interesting. So, The centurion knows that he can't countermand the commander's orders. He has a lower rank. He can't just say, okay, Paul, well, I'm backing off. So he has to go to the ranking officer, the commander, and he warns him. Verse 27, then when the commander came and said to him, uh, to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Ah, pulls out a trump card on him. So, Roman citizenship, you got to understand in that culture, it meant two things. It meant privilege and it meant freedom. There were three ways to attain it. It was a big deal. I mean, realize that a, a vast percentage of the population in the Roman Empire was were slaves and you didn't have any rights. You were property. So in order to get out of that, to, in order to, to actually have a life where you were free to move about and all, you needed to have Roman citizenship. You needed to, to, to be part of the crowd that was able to do what you wanted to do. The only way you could do that would either be through being born as a Roman citizen or by if you were gave special service to the government, uh, to the state. In other words, and very often people that were honorably discharged from the Roman military Part of what they were discharged with, if they had joined up and they were conscripts from another country or from another land outside of Rome, outside of Italy, they were given citizenship sort of as a veteran's benefit. I mean, that was it was a big deal. And as I was looking up, I was finding there are scraps and pieces of these licenses, these diplomas that they got 
that I was looking at online. I didn't decide not to make a slide out of one of them, but it was really interesting. The other thing that you could do, the third thing, was that you could buy your citizenship. You, it could be purchased. So originally, to be a Roman citizen, you had to be a resident of Rome, obviously. That's what, that's what it took, or a resident of Italy. However, as the empire had expanded, Rome had implemented what was called the Ius Italicum. We talked about that when we talked about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke when they were at Philippi earlier in the book of Acts. But I'll go over it again. What it was, was it was a decree that certain cities outside of Italy, like Philippi, also like uh, Paul's home city of Tarsus, uh, that to live there was the same as living on Roman soil. What it did was it was a declaration for specific cities that you are now literally part of Rome. Your soil is like Roman soil, kind of like when we have an embassy. If you go to the U.S. embassy anywhere in the world, when, the minute you walk into that embassy, you're on American soil. doesn't matter what country you're in. They did that with entire cities. So uh, what it did is it enabled residents to take Roman status uh, that men would come from Rome and govern. The governing officials would be there. They took a residence in their cities. So now that had been in place for a while. And by the time Emperor Claudius came to power, who was the emperor during this time, it had also become popular to sell Roman citizenship. As a matter of fact, his wife was notorious for doing favors, wink, wink, for a price. She would sell citizenship to prominent people around the empire that came and wanted that particular privilege, the privileges and the freedom that that allowed. Now, when it comes to the commander here, he's telling Paul, look, I obtained my citizenship with a a big price. Uh, He evidently had purchased his citizenship. uh, And it's interesting because his name is Lysias, his first name, or his last name, but he had changed his name probably because he had obtained his citizenship from Claudius to Claudius Lysias after the emperor who had granted his citizenship to begin with. So we see that in verse 26 of the next chapter where he talks about his name. I'm not going to go there now. So he says to Paul, with a great sum of money I obtained this, and Paul let him know that he was freeborn. It didn't cost me a thing. I was born a citizen. Uh, I had that status from, from birth, and that was a superior thing. Uh, it was something that Paul was, and he would lean on this. So you might be wondering... One, not just anybody who was facing scourging would claim Roman citizenship. I mean, it'd be like, I know, all I got to do is say I'm a Roman. Well, you better be really, really able to back that up. Uh, they were given a document to prove their citizenship. It was known as the Diploma Civitas Romania. It was carried in a little two-leaf wooden folder that people had on their person, kind of like us carrying a driver's license. They had to prove their citizenship. And so when Paul tells this guy he's a Roman, he's got the papers to back it up. doesn't say that, but we also know, though, from the customs of the day, that that's how they went about it. So to be freeborn was to be born of parents that were already citizens in Rome. Again, it was a big deal in those days, and Paul would appeal to his citizenship Several times as we go from here to the end of the book of Acts, he will continue to appeal to his citizenship and would carry him all the way to Caesar and all the way to Rome. What's fascinating to me about that is there was never a charge against him that would warrant holding him. He could have, he could have easily gotten off. And yet, as we'll see further in this chapter, Jesus says, I'm sending you to Rome. 
Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. The thing was that he never figured that he would go to Rome in chains. Verse 26, uh, then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. Good idea. <laughs> You're in trouble if you don't. The commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. So uh, Paul's statement here was like dropping a bomb with these guys. <laughs> and I, I have to wonder if he was at least inwardly smiling like, okay, here we go. But immediately the soldiers backed away from him. They knew that they had gone too far. They were very aware of the fact that they had overreached. Even the commander was afraid. Uh, he's the one that gave the order to scourge him. Uh, and if Paul decided to press charges, that would mean real trouble for the commander. He could have been subject to the same penalty as he was allowing Paul to be subjected to. In other words, they would take that and say, you ordered him to be scourged? All right, guess what? And they would, they could easily have taken him and scourged the commander to make an example out of him to not exceed Roman law. They were very serious about it. So verse 30 says the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and the commander uh, and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, brought Paul down and set him before them. So the commander here, he's kind of in a vice. He's in a tough spot. He still doesn't know what Paul had done. <laughs> He's trying to figure it out. Um, why was there such a riot? But now he knows that he's a Roman citizen. So because of that, <laughs> torture's off the table. Oh, well, got my options limited. I mean, that was, <laughs> he's seriously trying to figure out how to navigate this. So on the one hand, Roman law forbade him from holding Paul without cause. Very much like, you know, here, if you get arrested in the United States, they can only hold you for so long. They have to cut you loose unless they're going to make, file a charge against you. Same thing there. On the other hand, if he cut Paul loose, he, because this huge mob of Jews was so angry, he was risking an insurrection from them. So what he decides to do is to, to convene the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council in Israel, 70 elders. And they were, it was sort of the puppet government under, they were subject to Rome, but they held, they adjudicated matters of Jewish custom and Jewish law under the thumb of Rome. So he calls the council together. Uh, as he assembles them, he removes Paul's chains. This is the next day. It brings him down to meet him. And Paul would be the first to speak. Uh, going into Acts chapter 23 now. Verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren... I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So we're told here that Paul looked earnestly at the council, and that's a very strong word in the original language. That, that when it says he looked earnestly, it meant that he fixed his focus on them. It was intent, and that he was looking at them with an attentive eye, with keen observation. Okay, so you got to just catch the scene here. Paul is, he's like barreling into these guys. He is really concerned with what's going to take place next. There's a good possibility that he knew some of these men. This is the same council that had commissioned him to go to Damascus years before when he was rounding up Christians, bringing them back for prosecution. Now, he hadn't seen the council since that time, since that commission was given. So he would naturally, therefore, regard them with a, a, an attentive, even a wary eye. Verse 2, and then Ananias, the high priest Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. 
I, you know, I'm a visual person, and I just, I, whenever I read this, I just, it's kind of shocking to me. Now, a little bit about Ananias. It was a common name in those days. It's not the same Ananias that had come to Paul's aid in Damascus that we just looked at, nor was it the Ananias whom the angel had announced the birth of Jesus. Again, it was a common name. This Ananias, I was looking at the writings of Josephus, the secular Jewish historian in the first century. Um, his response is in keeping with what was known about him from what Josephus had to say. He described him as an insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy man. Uh, he didn't have a great reputation. This guy, Ananias, he would eventually be murdered by his own people in a ditch uh, later in his life after he went to jail. And there's all kinds of stuff about this guy's background. He was just a crook. He had power and he wanted to make sure everybody knew it. Not like anything we experience today. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the scene is it's reminiscent of the treatment that Jesus got as he stood before the high priest. Remember when he was on trial and, and they struck him in the face with the palm of their hand, says uh, one of the officers of the court did it then. So we don't know if it was Paul's demeanor, his looking at, his staring these guys down, or if it was his words that brought about Ananias' response, doesn't say. Regardless, the high priest immediately makes a very unjust move with Paul, uh, showing his contempt for him. Now, uh, it, possibly Ananias had been among those who knew Paul prior. Uh, Paul was a very known, well-known man. He was, a, he was a Pharisee. He was part of them, as we talked about. We don't know, but we do know that they looked at him now as an apostate Jew. They looked at him as a renegade and as a turncoat. And so I'm not surprised that he gets treated this way by the council. Verse 3, and Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, I, and I just think, score one for the team, yeah. <laughs> he says, for you said to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Come on. You know, he's mad. And, and straight up, Paul reacts, and he reacts, he doesn't respond, we'll talk about that. He reacts in the flesh, in the flesh being that old nature of Adam that Jesus says, you know what, that's got to die, that my nature in you can emerge. So, yeah, I think it'd be great if Luke wrote that Ananias ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth and Paul said, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> that one hurt. Want, want to hit me again? I'm going to turn the other cheek now. But he doesn't do that. He flashes. I mean, he triggers. And there are times for all of us, folks, where we react in the flesh. As to, uh, as opposed to responding in a godly manner. We're gonna, again, we'll talk about that towards the end of the message. But as we look at this, Paul has a valid point. He calls out the high priest's hypocrisy. This is blatant hypocrisy. He's saying, you're judging me according to, you're violating the very law that you're saying you're judging me with? Now, in Matthew 23, <laughs> in the midst of the seven woes that Jesus pronounces against the religious leaders of his day, members of the same ruling party, uh, that Paul is encountering here, he calls out their hypocrisy. He says in Matthew 23, 27 and 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Not a good thing to say. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's essentially the same thing that Paul is saying to the high priest after he had had him struck in the mouth. He's saying it's a double standard to break with the very law that you're here to uphold. And he's right. 
That's the essence of hypocrisy, to, to outwardly portray one thing, but inwardly portray another. And, and that's why he says, you're, you're a whitewashed wall. You, you, you look good, but I know better. Keep in mind, too, that as Paul is going through all of this, he still hasn't done anything wrong. He is innocent. And, and he meant what he said. He said, look, I stand before you in good conscience, before God and before you. His only crime in their eyes was that he stood up, shared things that they didn't like. And not that anything like that would have happened in our day, <clears throat> where someone stands for things that those in power don't like, so they retaliate by, by persecuting him and having him arrested. <sighs> the things that are going on in our world. Uh, you know, folks, the Bible, I mean, it's timeless. Uh, I, and I'll talk about in, in a bit, I mean, these things, I, they, can, they can light a fuse in me because it is absolutely unjust, the things that you see going on. It's absolutely unjust. And yet we've got to keep in mind that this life is for a moment and that God has a plan that's unfolding exactly. He is still in control. Verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? <laughs> yeah, let's stick up for this creep. So while it's true that in verse 3, Paul reacts by being smacked in the mouth, I mean, to be fair, I probably would too. Uh, I think it's also a fair assessment to say that he was in the flesh. But I love the fact that he doesn't stay there. That's important. Verse 5, then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Oh, that's an interesting statement. So there are a number of possible reasons why Paul wouldn't have known that he was speaking to the high priest. It doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. But I do believe that he was sincere. He's not just making up a story here. He really didn't know that he was talking to the high priest. Could have been confusing because the Roman commander, remember it said that he had summoned the council to come there to him. They may not have been in their normal positions because they, you know, they, they had a, a whole arrangement of the way that they did these things. They may not have had on the appropriate robes. We don't know. Possible Paul might have known Ananias in his former days as a Pharisee. And at that time he hadn't been the high priest. So he might have thought he was just talking to one of the guys. We just don't know. Regardless, Paul immediately is sorry for what he has said. And he shows that he knows and respects the law of Moses. By quoting Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28 says, You shall not revile God nor, nor curse a ruler of your people. So Paul is very clear that he was out of line. And it demonstrates here to me that Paul respects the office of the high priest, even though he has no respect for the man who holds it. Now we're going to stop here this morning and pick up next week in verse 6, where Paul has some very... <laughs> It's, he deals shrewdly with the council, with the Sanhedrin. But I want to take a look at a few things together as we wrap up. And the first is this. Are you getting picked on? There are times where we feel picked on. I don't know about you, but I do. <laughs> I, I talk to other pastors and yeah, there are times you feel pretty picked on a lot <laughs> at times. But I want to point out there's a right way and a wrong way to go about standing up for ourselves when, we, when it's appropriate. Because it's true that the vast percentage of the time, I'm going to simply extend grace. If somebody has wronged me or offended me in some way, and I'm going to choose to say or do nothing in response. I just want to have grace. Because I know, I mean, people are people. I, you know, if you're married, you know that we offend one another at times. I see a lot of heads nodding. 
But there are those times when standing up for ourselves becomes necessary. And, and folks, I want to be careful with this because I, it is not licensed to start nitpicking. That's where we have grace. In verse 25, we see Paul apparently calmly, anyway, asking the centurion if it was lawful to scourge a Roman citizen. Now, it's a fair question and a legitimate concern for him because, remember, he's about to be scorched. And we looked at the weapon they were going to use. I mean, this is not a small deal. He's looking at, this could be the end of it. <laughs> and, and I know that it's against the law. So he just asks the question. He floats it out there. Is, are you, is what you're doing right? Now, in verse 3 of chapter 23, we see something different as Paul is defending himself. <laughs> he resorts to name-calling. Loses his temper with the high priest. In both cases, he had been wronged. And I'm just going to leave it to you to decide the best approach. That's enough. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Folks, it's true though. I mean, we choose whether we react in the flesh or we respond to the things that come our way. And and I'm telling you, this, one of those areas that I pray for all the time is the Lord just help me to respond in love. I just want to be filled with your Holy Spirit and I want to respond in love. Do I always? <laughs> you can ask my wife. Point is, there's a right way and a wrong way. Second thing I want to look at is, how's the hypocrisy going? <laughs> Ananias is blatant hypocrisy. This microphone's going to drive me crazy. I don't know what's going on with it. <laughs> that was timely. You got one of the guys in the back. <laughs> I think I have a bad connection. Give me a second here. Uh, I probably won't fix it. Nope, not fixing it. I will just be really still. (laughs) Note to self, buy another microphone. This one's broken. I want you to notice that I didn't ask if there's hypocrisy going on in your life. I asked how it's going. Let me explain. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we all have hypocrisy in our lives, every one of us. The honest question needs to be, and we need to ask ourselves, as I grow in my relationship with Jesus, is there less of it? We're all in process. The Lord's working in our hearts, in our lives. And I understand too, it's not up to me to call hypocrisy out in the life of another. God's really good at pointing that out in my life. It's something the Lord wants to deal with us directly, individually. And again, the question becomes, am I willing to allow him to do that? Am I giving him permission to, by his Holy Spirit, to work in my heart to point out those areas of hypocrisy or hypocritical behavior in me? Because, you know, it's one of those, take the the beam out of your own eye before you attempt to take the speck out of another person's eye. It's one of those kind of things. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 12 and 13, we'll look at, uh, Jesus had been accused by the religious leaders of eating with tax collectors and sinners. How scandalous. His response, uh, verse 12, when Jesus heard that, uh, the accusation, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners catch this, to repentance. Here's the process. As the Spirit of God reveals the hypocrisy in my own heart, and he's faithful to do it, real growth, and I'm serious about this, real growth is produced by turning from that thing, whatever it is. 
receiving his grace and falling into step with him. That's how we grow. That's why I don't ask, is there, I say, how's the hypocrisy going? Is it decreasing? Am I being open to the Lord, open for reproof, open for his corrective hand, open for him to transform my thinking? Am I in a repentant attitude as he reveals those things or am I getting stuck in my pride? Well, I'm just as how I am. Yeah, we'll just deal with it. You, you got what you got. That, that's not going to, that doesn't fly. Be open, be humble. As he works, as he points those things out, as he puts his finger on those things in my heart, in my life, I want to do business with him. The last thing I want to look at is be angry, but don't sin. Straight up, sometimes that's harder than it looks, harder than it seems. Paul got pretty sideways (laughs) with the high priest after he had him smacked in the face. However, after he reacted in the next breath, he responded with great restraint and respect. Yeah, for the office, not for the man. It's an act of my will, folks, to choose whether to react or to respond in any given situation. I'm impressed by Paul's ability to separate the office of the high priest from the creepy guy who occupied it as he stood before the Sanhedrin. Can you think, (laughs) I'm going to end on a, a bit of a humorous note, but it's really serious as well. Can you think of anyone in office or in a position of power where this principle applies in our lives today? (laughs) Be angry, but police that anger. Don't use it as a justification for sin. As things unravel, gang, uh, and they're unraveling, and they're accelerating. That unraveling is happening at a a, a quicker pace every day. I, I I was shocked when yeah, we heard, and I'm just going to speak this. See where former President Trump was arrested this week, and you know, 37 counts or whatever felonies, and and then the next thing I look at is is Hillary Clinton published a photo with a hat saying, and it was chiding him about her email scandal that she totally skated on, and I thought, oh my goodness, that looks like what we're talking about here, and and again, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not here to, to you know, grind a political stuff, but I am here to say things are unraveling. And injustice is prevailing in our land. People in power are doing perverse things. And it's just like the way that God told us it was going to come down. We're living. If you, if you don't see God's word and you look and you see that your life is hidden right there, and there are things that have gone on before, there are things that are yet to, to unfold ahead of us, and that our lives are right there in the middle of that. You don't have an accurate view of the Word of God. This is not happenstance. It's by design. God is allowing, God is permitting evil to, to just be unleashed on this earth for a while. And believe me, if he doesn't take the church out, we would go through absolute hell on earth because that's what will happen after he raptures the church off of this place and, and the evil is completely unmasked and, un, and unleashed. I praise God that we're not going to be a part of that. In the meantime, we're seeing the stage set more and more and more. It's not new. Paul went through this. I mean, he's dealing with a similar situation here 2,000 years ago. And yet, and yet, in our day, those things cause me to just, I I love what the scripture says, look up, for your redemption draws near. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this in the book of Acts, just see, Lord, that the hearts of men have not changed, that they either belong to you and are earnestly desiring to be conformed to the image of your son, as your word declares, or they're in rebellion towards you and essentially doing their own thing and 
promoting evil agendas. We see that all around us. Lord, let that not be named among us. Let us be those cities on a hill, those lights that so shine, that glorify our Father in heaven, that when people see our lives, that they would find that attractive, that we could be in that place of peace in the middle of the storm. So Father, we can't produce those things in ourselves. We just don't have the capacity for it, but we know you can. All you require of us is a willing heart. So I pray, Father, that as you move and as you work and as you accomplish your will in us, that you would have our attention, that we would yield our hearts, yield our will to yours, that our will would be conformed to your will. And through that, others would see there's a changed life. We thank you, Lord, that you have touched our lives. We pray now for those whose lives uh, are hanging in the balance. Lord, use us to speak truth and love and, and, and encouragement into their lives as well, that they would turn and embrace you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.